0: Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 20, we're all in this together. About six years ago, I found myself sitting in a tutorial session for one of my first undergraduate courses. It was one of those first-year general history surveys, 1B03, world history since 1900 to be exact. We were about three weeks into the semester when the TA posed a question, and I am paraphrasing here. He asked, The First World War is often considered the first total war. Now, what do we mean by that? A number of respectable responses came up, ranging from its geographic scope, the number of participants, to the nature of the fighting. But none of these were the answer our instructor was looking for. My answer was that it featured conscription on a mass scale, which was on the right track, but still not quite. Finally, he said, Think of it this way. What separates it from previous conflicts is that it was the first example of when civilians at home and soldiers at the front were both active and equal participants in the war effort, and success on the battlefield depended on the commitment of civilian efforts. Now granted, civilians have always faced challenges in times of conflict, whether through food shortages, government crackdowns, or becoming targets themselves, but the Great War saw the mobilization of the civilian body on a mass scale and the public became part of the war effort as opposed to simple bystanders. The connection between home front and the front line was far more fluid, and it evolved to the changing nature of the war. The home front, a term actually birthed during the Great War, was not only willing, but eager to do their part to ensure victory on the battlefield. And we see this in Britain, France, and Germany, as women and other non-combatants took up the cause. In fact, the only home front which did collapse led to the revolution in Russia, but that's kind of a different story. But the idea of an eager home front challenges an often held misconception, that the war was never popular with the public, and was pushed by evil aristocrats and callous generals for their own gain. What I will try to show this week is that the average European, both male and female, upper and lower class, developed an unwavering commitment to the coming ordeal, and believed that they all had an important role to play. A shell produced by female laborers in 1916 and fired at the Somme shows us just how closely connected the two had become, and how one was dependent on the other. Better yet, a rifle held by a soldier could very well have been made by his own sister or girlfriend back home. Put simply, this shows us that the home front had come to accept the war, and as long as they were willing to shoulder the increasing casualty lists, it ensured the fighting would continue. So how do we account for this phenomena? We should begin by challenging another misconception, that in August 1914, Europe cheered for joy when news that the war had finally come. Everyone has seen the photographs of the cheering crowds assembled in the capital cities, but the notion that everyone erupted into jinguistic euphoria has come under considerable attack in recent scholarship. The problem with this view, as Geoffrey Verhey writes in his study, The Spirit of 1914, Militarism, Myth, and Mobilization in Germany, is that with hindsight, we have taken it at face value, and have used the images of the cheering crowds as a blanket picture to what was felt at the time. Not only did these images of the flower adorned railway cars and enthusiastic crowds get blown out of proportion for propaganda purposes, but Verhey, among others like Lawrence Sondhaus, have pointed out that this particular stance focuses too much on the reaction of the urban masses and not the rural, which, with the exception of Britain and Germany, form the bulk of the population. While it is true that there were pro war gatherings, some with hundreds of thousands in attendance, we should be careful not to ascribe these to what an entire nation, let alone all of Europe, felt. For example, Germany's population was upwards to 60 million, and on August the 1st, 300,000 assembled in Berlin to hear the Kaiser's famous statement, I see no more parties, only Germans, and was greeted with thunderous applause. But this was just one example in one city in a country full of them, and even 300,000 hardly accounts for the remaining 59,700,000. The reaction in the countryside and smaller townships, and this goes for all the original belligerents, was far more somber. Franz Blumenfeld, a student at Freiburg University who volunteered in August 1914, states his reason for enlisting in a letter to his mother, which reflects a very different attitude than what you would expect from a supposed pro-war Germany. Quote, I think that war is a very, very evil thing, and I believe that even in this case, it might have been averted by more skillful diplomacy. But now that it has been declared, I think it is a matter, of course, that one should feel oneself so much a member of a nation that one must unite one's fate as closely as possible with that of the whole, quote. Although Blumenfield was only 23 years old when he was killed in France that December, his allusion to national unity and feeling part of the collective is a far more appropriate term to describe the emotional outpouring of that summer. To understand this in better context, we should also make clear that until August, Europe was facing a crippling divide over the question of war. During the final days of July, there were anti-war demonstrations across the continent, as tensions from the ongoing crisis rose to a pitch. Most of these demonstrations were organized by women's groups and socialists, who felt that war would only serve to re-solidify the aristocracy's hold on the status quo. In France, Jean Jaurès, a leading socialist and arguably the most famous pre-war pacifist, ruthlessly criticized the alliance system, arguing that it would drag France into Armageddon and urged workers and unions to strike and delay orders for mobilization. Jodet was one of the few Europeans, like Polish banker J.S. Bloch, who predicted that the next war would bring unimaginable horrors and slaughter, and were powerful voices against the tide. Socialists, by and large, formed the bulk of the anti-war factions, and whether they could be brought to support their governments was the overarching question throughout the summer. What is most interesting is that it was Germany, the site of the largest pre-war rallies, which remained firmly divided until August. There, the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD, were the most powerful party in the country, holding a third of the overall seats in the Reichstag. Germany, of course, was the birthplace of Marx, and based on its large industrial sectors, socialism enjoyed considerable more support than its neighboring countries. For the Kaiser, the SPD was the proverbial bull in the china shop, and needed their support in order to pass through legislation allowing for the issuing of war credits, which are basically the same as war bonds, where people lend money to the government to be paid back with interest later. But as July drew to a close, the SPD had refused to support Wilhelm on the war credit debate and publicly denounced the alliance with Austria-Hungary, arguing their junior partners were risking a European war to settle their own beef with Serbia. On July the 28th, the day Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, the Social Democrats organized anti-war demonstrations in Berlin, with over 100,000 in attendance. These were followed by similar protests involving some 750,000 in total over the next few days. One of the most prominent and radical anti-war activists was Rosa Luxemburg, a Russian-born German who, like Jaurès, argued that war and militarism were the tools of the social elites to keep the working classes in check. In front of a crowd in 1913, she shouted that if the Kaiser wanted them to lift weapons of murder against their French brethren, then they had a national duty to publicly denounce him and organize strikes in response. What would bring German socialists in the SPD to support the Kaiser seems almost odd considering how events would play out just three years later. When news arrived that Russia had mobilized the social democrats rallied to the kaiser and on august the 1st the day of russian mobilization voted 78 to 14 in favor of war credits now the reason for this change of heart had less to do with any love for the kaiser but everything to do with the fact that the tsarist regime was a ferocious opponent of organized socialism and you will recall had responded with deadly force when the 1905 uprisings had taken place so when the kaiser stood on the balcony of his palace and made his statement of no parties only germans this is what he was referring to, as for the first time since Bismarck's day, political unification had been achieved, which made August 1914 arguably the most popular month of Wilhelm's reign. So in this sense, national harmony was felt throughout Europe that summer, but that should not be juxtaposed with war enthusiasm, because they are not the same thing. There were many in Europe who greeted the war enthusiastically. The sheer number of volunteers, especially in Britain, tell us that story. But the myth that Europeans cheered the outbreak of the war has collapsed in recent years. A lot of the sources we used to build that myth came from post-war memoirs, like David Lloyd George, who wrote of cheering crowds in London. But it should be noted that many of these recollections were published so wartime leaders could justify their decisions, at a time when people were asking how the diplomatic system collapsed so spectacularly. Conrad van Hutzendorf, Sir Edward Gray, and Ferdinand Foch all spoke of similar feelings of war euphoria. But again, each were eager to clear their name from any wrongdoing. So it is more correct to argue that the nations of Europe were united in nationalistic, not militaristic pride. As we talked about in our second episode on the July Crisis, divisions in Britain were put aside over Belgian neutrality. In France, opposition parties embraced and pledged a Union sacri, sacred union, to support Poincaré's government. But in the French case, unification was much easier to come by, since it was clear that this was a defensive war, and Germany was the clear aggressor. But of course, getting popular and political support is one thing, having to hold on to it is an entirely different issue. As men were recalled or volunteered, governments called on non-combatants to fill the vacant roles. This started in France almost immediately, as 2.9 million out of a working male population of 12.6 million were mobilized in the first five months alone. As part of the Union Sacrée, women were called upon to take over the fields and agriculture, and by all accounts they did so eagerly. Although it should be noted that this was done so men could be freed from military duties. Similar things happened in Germany as well. The Federation of German Women's Association, the BDF, established in 1909, encouraged women to pick up vacant labour and fill the gaps while the men were in uniform. The leader of the BDF, Gertrude Balmer, proclaimed in 1914, "...the German army cannot be equipped, clothed, fed, transported, nursed, and bonded together without the contribution of German industry." And that industry is unthinkable without the work of women. Now, the roles of women in the war effort is probably the most famous image from the home front. Whether it was in the fields, hospitals, or later munitions factories in 1916, women did begin to take on jobs which had previously been restricted to men. But this was a fairly slow process which primarily manifested itself in Britain. Even with the Union Sacre in France, Poincare attempted to demobilize men from the army and use colonials from the empire to fill labor demands and getting urban French women to fill vacant occupations was a tough sell, since separation allowances in France were initially quite generous. But what often gets lost in the shuffle is that women played an active role beyond the factories or fields. In August, thousands of women volunteered for nursing duties or began grassroots projects to help ease the pressure. In the United States, Red Cross nurses marched to show they were ready for the call if President Wilson decided to get involved, while Caroline Spurgeon, the first female professor of literature at the University of London, emphasized that it was not the British army or navy that was endangered, but our lives, liberties, institutions, and even civilization. This war will require sacrifices from everyone, whether they're at the front or hundreds of kilometers away. In the first five months, these sacrifices came in a variety of forms. In Germany, bread rationing was introduced in January 1915, as the Royal Navy blockade and Russian victory in Galicia cut off the largest supplier of grain for both Germany and Austria-Hungary. An episode followed where pig farmers could no longer afford to feed their stock high-quality grain, and brought their hogs to market which resulted in an oversaturation of the meat market. The head of the newly created War Raw Materials Office, Walter Rathenau, imposed slaughter restrictions but when rumours spread that farmers had resorted to replacing grain with potatoes, the panic of a potato shortage soon gripped Germany, and some 9 million pigs and cows, nearly 40% of the national stock were put to death, in the infamous pig slaughter of 1915. But some were more serious. On August 8th, Britain's parliament passed the Defence of the Realm Act, which gave Asquith's government more control of state finances, but also the right to suppress criticisms from newspapers and media, and punish any conceived treacherous slights. The French Union Sacre had similar characteristics, as Ferdinand Foch declared martial law and was given heightened political power. As the war dragged on, the Defence of the Realm Act, or DORA for short, would undergo numerous changes as necessities demanded most significantly the introduction of conscription, but also the internment without trial of suspected German sympathizers. So with all these changes swirling in the air, why did the Homefront put up with it? And why didn't they say, um, no thanks, after the first casualty lists began to appear? I recently came across the front page of my local newspaper, dated August 8th, 1914, and it reports, Kaiser loses 25,000 men killed and wounded at Liege. Certainly reading that headline in 1914 would have been just as horrific then as it is today. So we need to ask ourselves, what propelled the home front forward? The problem facing governments was how to keep the public on board. Because as demands increased, governments relied more heavily on the home fronts. As Gary Schlaffield eloquently put it, the war went on because the people of Europe willed it so. Propaganda, of course, was crucial. The call to arms in Britain in Lord Kitchener's steely blue gaze called for 100,000 volunteers. But within five months, nearly 1,186,000 were in uniform, an exponential growth never seen by the Empire before. This number would grow, of course, and supplemented by the arrival of Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, and Indian troops by 1915, which we will talk about more next week. But naturally, if you are calling on your nation to make such a sacrifice, you need to offer them something in return some sort of goal for which to strive for, and show them that it will not be for nothing. The most telling example of this came in September 1914, when the German Chancellor, Betham Holdwick, announced the German war aim, usually referred to as the September Programme. Betham Holdwick had become Chancellor back in 1909, after Bernard von Bülow resigned the post following a kerfuffle with a British newspaper, after an article attributed to the Kaiser appeared in the Daily Telegraph which featured some unflattering language about the English. Holwig, by my sources, never warmed to the idea of a war, and although he had been the guy who approved the blank check to Austria-Hungary, expressed doubts over their allies' chosen direction. Now, historians have grappled over the significance of the September program. What it laid out was what Germany planned to do after they had won the war. This included control over Russian Poland and the economic domination of France and Belgium, essentially turning them into German satellites. It also called for the seizing of their African colonies which would have put Germany in a direct competition with Britain. This was Weltpolitik put into practice, making Germany a world power which had been the Kaiser's goal since his ascension in 1888. The debate for historians is what this document means in its appropriate context. Some argue, like Fritz Fischer did, that it was a clear indicator of Germany's war guilt. While others believe it reflects an ominously reluctant Germany and by making their war aims public, alludes to a government who expected a longer war, and was giving their public a sort of endgame to stay in sight of. Both are compelling arguments, but what the program did do was provide the Allies a clear villain and propaganda goldmine. Here was the Chancellor's own words, spelling out his plans for a German-dominated continent. This gave the Entente Powers a measuring stick of what they stood to lose if Germany won the war. The evil Hun wants to control all of Europe. Are you going to help stop that? Considering the nationalist euphoria in August, that is a very persuasive argument, and it goes a long way in explaining why the home front stuck by, even as more was demanded and the slaughter intensified. So in order to wrap this all up, we should pull back and give a summary for what all this means. It is fair to argue that civilian populations gave their governments an unwavering level of support, which ensured the fighting could continue. We see this even as it became more brutal. The French did not pack up during the bloodletting at Verdun. In fact, their resolve only hardened. And the English do not say enough is enough after the horrific early days on the song. So even as more demands were placed, the home front may have bent, but it never broke. A brief look at shell production puts this into perspective. In the first five months, there were 1.4 million shells of different calibers produced in Britain. But by June 1916, that number had risen to some 35 million. This could only have been accomplished if the public believed the cause was worth it. A total war is the mobilization of entire societies and economies, and in order for it to be a total war, the relationship between home front and front line is reciprocal. As the stalemate deepened, the people at home actively worked to break it. They were the ones who produced the shells, the guns, the uniforms, and the boots, which had a direct impact on the battlefield, and that was something which in 1914 had never been seen before. Next week, I want to put what we talked about today into perspective by looking at the so-called shell scandal in Britain, because when we last left the Western Front, a shell shortage had gripped the combatant armies, so this is a good way to reintroduce events there. 1915 would prove to be a year of firsts, and as it became clear that the Western deadlock was not to be cracked so easily, the belligerents began to look elsewhere while tinkering with a few local ideas. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com, There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Feedback of any kind is always more than welcome. If you are interested in helping out the Great War Podcast, find us on iTunes and rate us 5 stars, as that will keep us afloat in the rankings and encourage me to keep pumping out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.